Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. As we read our passage today, we'll immediately see that the Apostle Paul is dealing with questions that the Corinthians have asked him in a previous letter. Some of these situations may at first seem rather foreign to our own ears, but as we take a look, we'll find that there actually is a striking parallel to our own world, our own culture. We'll also see that there are several questions because of certain textual issues in this passage. In other words, how something should be translated. I'm using the English Standard Version, which in this passage stands with the majority view of how verses 36 through 38 are understood. And if you're reading a New American Standard, you won't even recognize what we're talking about on this one. They're with the minority view, and it comes out a little different. All those things are possible in this text. Um, There's good points to be made for each view, but the impact of the difference actually doesn't change the main points that Paul is making. So I'm going to stick with the ESV, and if you want to have some fun and you've got an NAS, go ahead, but it won't look the same. There are also varying opinions about what the present distress is how the English Standard Version says it, what that refers to in verse 26. Further hints are in the text, but they never really nail down what the present distress is for these Corinthians. But we'll offer some ideas that I think will be helpful. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 starting at verses 25 and going through the end of the chapter in verse 40. 1 Corinthians 7, 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress... It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods." And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. 
The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now many of you, if you spend any time in the New Testament at all, this is one of those chapters you're just shaking your head at. And as we just read it, you're probably already reading things into the text that you should not. I'll just warn you because you can't go there yet until we get a chance to look at it closely. When you consider some of the current ideas about singleness that have not just entered our mainstream cultural thinking but are actually fast becoming the majority view, the teaching here in 1 Corinthians 7 becomes even weightier for the Christian community to understand. The Word of God speaks to these issues, especially here. And so we believers need to grasp what is taught here and understand it well enough to make sure the current Christian generations can pass it down to the next because it will disappear quickly unless we do that. Why is our text so relevant? Because we face a tidal wave of ingrained, self-centered individualism, which says that the best thing to do and the most important way to live is to first and foremost take care of ourselves, period. We see this in every segment of our culture. Paul has already said a whole lot about those who are married and those who are single. But now, in the last half of this chapter, Paul addresses the Corinthians' questions. These are Christians who are asking questions concerning 
some specific situations about marrying or not, about staying single or not. In other words, it helps them, this passage does, his answers, work out how to lead a life that the Lord has assigned to them and to which God has called them. Verse 17 is the main point of this whole chapter and last week's message, and that is the point here. Paul said, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which he has called him. And he actually repeats that two more times. And now he's got specific questions where they wrote him and said, okay, we, we hear that, but what am I supposed to do about this? And we have to realize that he's answering their questions. Some of it may apply, a lot of it may apply to you or to me, but we have to keep it in context. So this help them, helps these people work out how to lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them. So, again, in order to deal with their specific situations, he's got to comment on how living the Christian life in the real world is very hard and requires many hard decisions, especially choosing to marry or not or to stay single or not. So in verse 25, we see after he starts that he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And many people take this and make pure garbage out of it. In other words, he's not relying here on a direct teaching of Jesus. Jesus never spoke, or we don't have a record of him speaking to these particular questions. But he says that his opinion should be taken seriously. Why? Because he is writing as one who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so his judgments are authoritative. That's the distinctions that we need to make about that particular statement that Paul makes right here at the beginning of our text. And then in verse 26, we see something that seriously affects the context of everything else he says here. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So what's the big question? What's the present distress? Isn't it interesting that we don't get a specific answer? What it probably is not referring to that you might immediately think it does is the end of the world. Which at first glance, again, is what many just assume. Why could we first assume that Paul is referring to the end of the world? Why would that be the first place we'd go? Well, because of two more comments here in verse 29 and 31. In verse 25, he uses the, fre- the sentence, well, part, part of a sentence, the appointed time has grown very short. 
And then in verse 31, at the end, he says, the present form of this world is passing away. So that's all you knew. What do you think? Sounds like the end of the world. In other places, Paul, when he refers to the last days, he uses different kind of language here. That's one hint. But short, that word at the, in verse 29, the appointed time has grown short. It would actually be better to render that word as critical. Where it's not time, it's what the distress is, is critical. So it would be clearer to say the appointed time is not short, but critical. In other words, we now look forward to Christ's return, but we have to wait. Knowing that none of the things of the world are worth completely centering our lives around. We're taught in many places that the time between Christ's resurrection and his return will be full of all sorts of afflictions and woes, especially for believers. And if you look at history, it's not just one big, huge affliction. It's waves of afflictions and distresses that sometimes have grown so much that people have said, the world's not going to survive this. This has got to be the end. And the list of the people who have said, this is the end, is very, very long. And the last time was not that long ago. My parents. You know, when you grow up and you hear that World War I was the end of all wars, and then you have to go fight in World War II, what do you think? This has got to be it. It's got to be over. But it isn't, is it? So we're taught in many places that the time between Christ's resurrection and his return will be full of these afflictions and distresses. So it's a critical time now, the, one, the time we're living in, to be diligent and wise and expectant. But it's hard to do that. And in verse 31, we read the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is real interesting because the word for form here was used to describe for the Greeks a mask that an actor would wear in theater. This then gives us a picture of the things of the world, even the good things, gradually passing away. What do we mean? Being revealed as not being able to do what we thought they could do, which is usually promising to give us what? Our heart's desires. The things of the world promise. You worship me, you follow me, you spend your life trying to get this or that or be this or that, and you replace God Almighty with those idols. This time in the world is when it's gradually revealed and that mask is taken off and you see how empty 
those promises are. That's what this is saying. In other words, the masks of the things of the world are being torn off so that the emptiness of their promises of being the ultimate reasons for living are revealed for what they are. Does that make sense? So instead of pointing to the end of the world, this is actually pointing to living in the world in a way that realizes Christ is the only faithful one who can and does deliver in giving us newness of life and real purpose and certain hope, not to mention forgiveness. Everything else, the good things in life, cannot deliver or be what we look to for ultimate meaning and purpose. Including your spouse. Include, list anything. Nothing can give you the ultimate promise that Christ can. So, once that hits here and connects with here, you combine that with the realization of facing other hard things. Think of the Corinthians. How about the coming intimate Roman persecution of Christians? There are some emperors on the the throne in Rome are getting ready to be that are going to try to wipe out believers for the entertainment of their own population. The Jews have already been kicked out of Rome. But the Christians are going to become literally the food that feeds the populace's lust for blood. You put that in with what we just said about the mask of the things of the world. That's the context of Paul's letter. And it could also be possibly other kinds of present distresses. You know, famines were very common in this part of the world off and on. And other misfortunes to the community. All of these distressful things would do what? They would add tremendous pressure and cause unbelievable difficulty in trying to make life's decisions, especially the big ones. The big ones are hard enough in times of peace. What about times of persecution? When you read Paul's words after this, all of a sudden it hits you in the face how practical the reality can be. Example, you know, knowing and praying for many of the issues and concerns and situations that we know about in just our little body is a tremendous privilege. But one thing that becomes immediately apparent as we pray for our own lives and intercede for our brothers and sisters is that If we were in a time of scary persecution, where you look around each time we gather and go, where are they? 
have they been arrested for claiming the name of Christ? Did they have to sneak out of town because their lives were threatened because they're Christians? Etc., etc., etc. How would we pray differently? See what happens in that kind of a context. If you're deciding, should I stay single? That would be a good thing. Should I try to be married? See what Paul would say? And that's exactly what Paul addresses in this last half of chapter 7. So, now we can address what Paul actually says to these people, which should make a lot of sense if we keep this context in mind. The next question Paul addresses concerns the betrothed or virgins and married. The actual word there is virgins. It's in the context of betrothal. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's Mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Make sense now? The betrothed are virgins of marriageable age who are obviously in a quandary about what to do. Paul simply says, I think that in view of the present distress... It's good for a person to remain as he is. Why? Well, any of you who have been, can remember when you were married, if you're old, or or any of you in the process not too long ago, or maybe right now, you can probably think of some really good reasons why he would say that. But what does he say in verse 28? If a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. In other words, the choice is yours. You're free to make the choice. Just know what are some of the things you will also have to choose. Then he goes on, actually at the end of this chapter, in verses 39 and 40, he answers the same way about widows adding a reminder that if a widow remarries, she may only marry a believer in Christ. But that's kind of how he closes the chapter. It's almost the same answer to both categories here. So next, what about those already married or those not married and free from a wife? He says, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. That sound familiar? You are free in those situations to make either choice. Now, if you skip down, and we'll get to that part that looks rather strange, but we'll skip down to verses 36 and 38, and here we're probably looking again at couples who are engaged. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry, it is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do any better, even better. So Paul is addressing here men who think they are acting inappropriately with respect to the virgins in whom they, they're engaged. <clears throat> he tells them that they're not sinning if they go ahead and marry, as he said back in verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 7, he addresses this as well. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. So I think we all understand the idea there. Paul also commends the man who does not choose to marry after weighing all the contributing or available factors. The phrase to keep her as his betrothed can be confusing to understand, but it means he was committed to keeping her a virgin during the awkward remaining period of betrothal or engagement, which in this case, this time in history with this group of people, would not be permanent. In Jewish law, a man was required to support his virgin for a year in case the engagement was dissolved to protect her because if she was betrothed and then all of a sudden, for some reason, she wasn't betrothed, a woman at that time in history had a rough go of it. So there was a Jewish law, but what about Corinth? They aren't all Jews. So you can imagine how they would try to work some of this out. Now, going back to verse 28, the last part of verse 28 through 35, we see here why the present distress puts so much pressure on everyone, especially the married. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And all the married people said, amen. I thought we'd get at least a bunch of amens there. That's how God works on us. But he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So he's talking more than just normal, you got to get used to being married issues here. He's talking about the complications of a distress, some kind of persecution. Something's going on that, that's really, really hard for these believers. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short or critical. From now on, not, okay, we're just going to read this and don't fly off because you know as well as I do, there are some people out there who have no regard for the text at all, and they just go, well, this is my excuse to do anything I want. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Good, you didn't respond. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. 
And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Let's stop right there. Does that not break your heart? This is serious stuff. This is the things that we do every day, in and out. Married man cares for his family, loves his wife. Kids, if God grants them. And he's now having to make choices in a time where he may lose them all or vice versa. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, that sounds backwards. But what happens here is this person sees what's going on and it really gets them down and there's grief and mourning. And Paul is saying, Christ is still your hope if he is who you worship. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Here we go back the other way. Those who buy as though they had no goods. In other words, every part in here is you're looking at the day-to-day activities of what you do in life. And he's saying there's a lot more to this than that. The present form of the world is passing away. All this stuff is being revealed as not being the ultimate that we should live for. And there's nothing like persecution that reveals those things to us. So everything that we try to hold within our own purview and control and make it better and work on it and make it work, all of that is, if we, that's all that's in our life, we're constantly going to be dissatisfied. Always. And this is pointing out what is really important and what's not. And that's how he ends this this part. For the present form of this world is passing away. Is there anything in this list that's not covered? Do you realize that these general statements cover almost everything we do? Our relationships, especially if you're married, your demeanor, it's not just whether your team lost or won the day before. This is talking about life in general. Everything looks so sad. Everybody's hurting. Everybody's being persecuted. Everybody's boss is horrible. Go on, on, and on, and on, and on. Those things may be true. They were true here for these people. What is Paul saying? Yes. But there is one who is faithful. And there is one who keeps his promises. And there is one who has proved his love by dying for you. What? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's turning their attention and our attention away from what we do all the time. And through the persecutions, making us realize 
that the things we thought were the most important in life are not. Because they could go away just like that. And we do not like to hear that because we are all so wrapped up in all this. That's why it's hard. But let's keep going. Paul says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties or concerns, is the way it's translated elsewhere. The unmarried man is anxious or concerned or cares about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious or concerned about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the point. And there are several observations here that are really important. It's not that if you're single, you don't have difficulties, but you have them for one person, main person, instead of two. So, Paul is single, and that's why he kind of says, hey, in a time of persecution, if you're single, think about staying that way. It's not just easier, it's less complicated, and you can concentrate on helping others and not be tied down completely to caring for your spouse or family. You see what he's saying? And he's given gifts to people to be either or. The same goes for anxieties. You have them for one instead of two if you're single. The married person, person's interests seem more likely to be divided between pleasing the Lord and pleasing the spouse. Paul's not saying that by being single you can really please God and married people can't. That is not what he's saying. He's not saying that as if having a spouse and pleasing God were at odds. And the way we can think about that is that one thing that pleases God is when we care for others, not just our families, right? And singleness gives you a certain freedom to do that in a way that you just can't do if you're married. Because you'd never be home if you just cared for everybody else all the time. So, many other decisions, like making schedules. If you're single, it's your schedule. If you're married, it's you check with the boss. Which is great. You learn how to work together. We're not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just, you know, the list is, the checklist is just a little longer there. If you're working it out with two Instead of one. Singles can obviously have just as many or even more obligations than married people. But that too is a factor of priorities for every Christian. So, are you sitting there going, well, Paul didn't really answer anything. 
I mean, he didn't tell me what I should do. Sounds like your children. Mom, you didn't, you didn't answer my question. As the wise parent looks at him and says, yeah, but I gave you the options and now you know what you're free to do before the God that you say you believe in, little Johnny, so let's see what you come up with. And if it's the wrong answer, I'll get you later. No, no, that's not what he's saying. See what he's doing here? He's letting you know the parameters of living in a hard world, especially where there's persecution and you're, you've got to make some big choices. And there's what you should be catching is a tremendous freedom there, but the freedom is because you stand before the God that you worship and you answer to him and he's not sitting there going, you have to do this. I want to do this. Well, then if you do this in the area of marriage, you're not being married, especially if these times are hard, then understand what that will what involve. And don't gripe later when you get this because there's tremendous blessings in it. Either way, doing it together may be what a lot of people are called to, which is a wonderful thing. But you've got to understand what this is. The phrase about single women working out how to be holy in body and spirit has really been, oh my goodness. You can find whatever you want that to say in some commentary. They're all different. But it's really a shorthanded way of saying how to be holy in every area of your life, in public and in private. Paul seemed to get excited about single people being freer. That comes through to cultivate themselves so that they could serve more effectively in the public square. How many people that are single think that way? How many anybody thinks that way? To grow personally so that they could do more for their neighbors. And we see that often. And those kind of people make a mark on your life. The first... uh, church I attended in Austin going to college was a a bigger church and and the Sunday school class that my roommate and I went to was taught by a man who seemed old to us at the time. He was probably 35 or 40. (laughs) I think 40. And it was obvious that this single man who had a business was invested in the lives of the young men in college so that they could walk as Christ would walk in a really big campus. It was obvious. He, he threw himself into it. And you know what? A married guy just wouldn't have that much time. And that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. The bottom line is that the present distress accentuates all the stresses of life for everybody. You may have noticed if you've been a student of history that the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth that has more things than probably all the other countries put together is also the most unhappy. 
never fulfilled, never have enough. That's us. That is us. This is a heart issue for every one of us. Paul teaches in all his writings that serving the Lord in marriage and family and sharpening one another is a calling and a gift, just as being single is a calling and a gift. We should be aware of and realistic about the hard seasons of life so that we understand what loving and serving the Lord actually means and looks like in those situations. And some of us never grow up. We've got to grow up at some point. And you know what? In that regard alone, this passage is really remarkable and it is practical. Verses 29 through 31 don't endorse celibacy or separation or divorce. How do we understand all those live-as-though phrases? Those who have wives should live as though. Those who mourn should live as though. Those who rejoice as though. Those who buy as though. Those who deal with the world as though. Get all that? It's actually a poem. It's poetry. How do we understand all that? The point is that as Christians, we should not make earthly things our ultimate objectives. Ultimate objectives. Whether we're married, whether we're grieving in sorrow, whether we're in a season of joy, whether we're busy acquiring all kinds of possessions, Christians should not be totally absorbed by them. The most important thing is not filling up our lives with worldly stuff and accolades so that we'll look good and important to others. Instead, we should see and understand the transient nature of all things in the here and now and instead be preparing for our life everlasting right here and right now through what you're doing and the worldly things that you have to mess with. That's the point. In other words, we're taught not to set our hearts upon earthly things. I think Jesus said a lot about that. Making anything or anyone an idol that replaces the one true God who we worship. Because if you do, you'll always be disappointed. And you will be, at the end of your life, the old crotchety grouch. Everything went wrong my whole life. Everything, everything, everyone. So if you're experiencing a present distress or some form or fashion, or if we are, let us recognize and focus upon our Lord, whether we're married or single or widowed or recovering from uh, some other situation. And folks, I know you all know this, but sometimes when you hear this coming from someone who's a full-time minister, you think, well, they don't know what they're talking about. 
It's not true. Yeah, I taught high school. Before that, it's kind of a youth minister, which was like what my father-in-law called playing. Life happens. And we've got to understand what that means. That we're called to different things by a God who knows how he's gifted us. And sometimes at different times in our lives. He gets real creative along the way. But it's all for the purpose of getting my heart at his disposal, focused on him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need to constantly ask the question, do we value you above all else and everyone else? And so much of the time, oh, God, we confess, no, we don't. We thank you that in our lives now, no matter how they've gone or where we think they're going or what's going on right now, that you are using even the hardest and most impossible looking things to bring us to a point to see who you really are. You're preparing us for an eternity in heaven where all this will be gone and there won't be any more sorrow or pain. And we'll see what eternal life in your presence is like with everyone who has been cleansed and and glorification the sin will finally be gone praise your holy name until then we've got lessons to learn and gifts to give and love to share and a gospel to proclaim and we ask that we could do that together and learn how to walk through the preparation of the next generation and the next in ways that bring honor and glory to you. And Lord, we pray that we could fill our days well in honor of you up to the last breath. And we thank you for so many examples that you've given us of your children who have trusted you that way. May we learn what you want us to learn. May this passage not confuse us anymore. May you make it one of our most favorite as we realize how you give us reality as it really is, not some fake thing, and you show us where we're off and where we can be on. Thank you that you are God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.